Programming Throwdown, episode 140, Developer Burnout and Infrastructure as Code with Ronak Rahman. Take it away, Patrick. Welcome, everybody. Another exciting episode today. We're very excited with our uh, guest here, Ronak, talking about two topics. Now, I watch some reality TV. I know I'm shameful. You're not supposed to say that. And I watch that Top Chef, and they always fuss, don't try to do two dishes because you're going to screw one of them up. Hopefully, that won't be us today. Uh, we're going to do two topics that were that are going to be pretty interesting. I'm excited. The first one, super, super relevant to everyone, developer burnout, but then also infrastructure as code, how they relate, what it is. I think this is going to be a pretty awesome jam-packed episode. Welcome to the show, Ronak. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here talking about uh, topics uh, that are interesting to me. And also, thank you, Patrick, for the uh, cooking reference. I love cooking shows. Oh, uh, okay. Well, okay. We can get sidetracked there. The forming chocolate sculptures one. I forgot what it was called, but that was my favorite. The like French company. Okay. Yes. Yes. It was the French. Uh, the French uh, and the amazing yeah. things they could do with the chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely amazing. Oh dear. Uh, um, okay. Yeah, we're definitely going to get sidetracked, and I'm going to be hungry. It's almost lunchtime here. Uh, so, um, <laughs> I'm distracted now. Ronak is developer relations manager at Quali, and uh, we traditionally start out the show Ronak by just sort of talking about how people got into tech and their kind of story, how they ended up where they are. Um, so why don't you talk maybe like, do you remember what your first computer was or your first experience and sort of like, where did you kind of build that passion? First of all, um, I, I want to say again, thank you for having me. I mean, think about the extreme privilege that I'm enjoying. I'm talking about something I care about and you guys are asking me these questions and you want to listen. I think this is all the human experience is about, like <laughs> wanting to be heard and listen. Yeah, I totally remember what got me into technology. And I'm hoping somebody on um, listening to this podcast will remember it. But um, my old man uh, was a an engineer, and they were learning this cool thing called Fortran back in his days in the 70s. And I mean, it was like, it was cutting edge, right? And uh, to train the engineers, they had them, um, and I think I, I found this on eBay still, uh, they're like green and white manuals. It's like a really skinny, uh, you know, flexible manual, and uh, it's striped green and white in the front, and it's learning Fortran. And uh, it basically looked like a math book on the inside. And I was seven years old where I pulled these down off the, I'm not kidding. I, I pulled them off the, cause I was so bored. I was like looking for more to read and um, I read it and it looked just like math problems. So I started doing it and started writing out the exercises and whatever. And my dad came home from, from work and he was like, what, who wrote in my manuals? And by the way, this is right. How, did you do this? He had, you know, he didn't at first do this, and uh, and and him being and so him being an Indian dad, not very impressed easily. You know, they, the typical joke there is they give ninety nine point nine percent approval, so you're always chasing that that point one percent. But he gave full approval then, and that that sparked it. That I was done. I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to program. I'm going to create the next awesome. Yeah. So that's how I got started. That's a great story. Wow. I mean, I think there's a story there about parenting and about like the balance between letting giving approval, but also also sometimes like asking more of your kids and like 
trying to make sure that they know that they got to push themselves. I, I, that's something I, as being a parent, I won't get in that side topic either, but I mean, that, that's a, that's a struggle. So, I mean, that's awesome that it worked out that time. That's really cool. Yeah, that. And, and also, I guess I, uh, you know, since you brought up parenting and whatnot, I should put a plug in for, um, you know, sometimes things work, you know, like with parenting and, and apparently it worked out in this case, but also don't be afraid to seek the mental health, uh, help that you may or may not need due to the, that parenting style. Um, so, you know, work on yourself. And that's great because like we're talking about developer burnout, another stress related uh, issue. So, so I think that'll tie really nicely in with what we're talking about and, and solving those, those potentially deep wounds from our, our childhood. <laughs> so, okay. All right. I mean, wanting to talk about developer burn, I mean, everyone has that. I mean, this is something you know, we were talking a little bit before the show. Very, you're very passionate about, you think a lot about. I think that's awesome. Important to talk about. Maybe how you kind of that first experience, you know, obviously growing up, kind of where did you get, what was your kind of programming journey, your tech journey, however that kind of went from there. And then, you know, kind of first starting to encounter this uh, dreaded, dreaded burnout. I love it. And I, um, I have a really good story on how that started. And I have to be careful not to mention any, uh, any business names. Okay. So, uh, he yeah, here we go. All right. Uh, so let's see if, if our listeners can decode what I'm saying. Uh, my first. So he was at Blueberry. It started <laughs> at Blueberry. No, just <laughs> it's. <laughs> Um, there is a uh, a big software creator in the Pacific Northwest, and I was a young developer working there. And uh, the rumor has it that burnout is a model built in to that corporate's culture. But I was young and hungry, and uh, thought this was the best uh, thing that ever happened to me job wise, and and I was eager uh, to do it. So I had no problem pulling in the the twelve hour workdays, and um. And it was amazing, right? First time, uh, you know, out of college and these, these big buildings working on problems that were uh, important. Anyways, uh, I was leaving uh, one night after, you know, just two months of doing this. And I made friends with the security guard who actually decided to chew the fat with me and walk to the parking lot with me, the parking structure. And I asked the security guard, hey, what's up with that Prius in the corner? And I think anybody from this time period will know this story. Uh, and there was just this Prius gathering dust, had all flat tires, totally covered in dust. And uh, the, the security guard told me, well, that's actually uh, a person who's been working here for um, a year now, hasn't left. Uh, and he got a call from his now ex-girlfriend saying to come and pick his stuff up because he no longer lives there. Um, and his stuff in the Pacific Northwest was just sitting outside soaking in the rain. And he discovered that he no longer has a life there. And he just brought his car back and parked it there and just stayed working. Wait, we got to double click on this. So, so he's so where does this person sleep? I mean, how does this work functionally? Okay, let me tell you all the things that end up contributing to uh, developer burnout actually seem really cool at the beginning. And I'll give an example like my kid, my 14 my year old loves his smartphone, we just gave it to him. But all of us adults know that smartphone is like the work of the devil, right? And you try to hide it away from you as much as possible. So I thought it was cool. 
as a young uh, software developer that there is uh, kitchens filled with large industrial refrigerators full of all the food you can want. You know, I just opened my backpack and just put them all in because super poor. And they had uh, massage chairs and uh, quiet rooms. And we all did have our important office. I think you're getting, uh, Jason, the answer to this question is that developer slept in his office. And by the way, that was totally okay. Yeah. Wow. That is wild. Yeah, I feel it's worth giving some context there that, I mean, people have heard the stories about other companies and yeah, you, like you mentioned, free food, free meals. They're also often, I mean, maybe you don't know this. I was explaining to someone in my family, this is a thing they I made a joke about staying in the office. I didn't, but I made a joke. Hey, I could just live there. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, there are showers because people bike in. And so there are showers. You, you could shower. You could have stuff. You know, you have an office or a quiet room where you could easily nap at night when no one's there. And there are stories, both probably real and not so real, of people, uh, you know, just living in the office and it not being the worst thing. Like people kind of go, uh-huh, yeah, I could see doing that it makes a sense. And especially when you couple it with how expensive it is in a lot of these places to live, now you say, you can actually justify it, right? It's not that the person is broken, it's that they're smart. And they're smart because they've, they've killed their commute, they don't have to do it anymore, they don't have to pay for a home. And you can actually begin to like put this person on a pedestal. And the same happens with, um, now the, very, the thing is people getting those big vans, the conversion vans, and parking them in the parking lot. Oh, I don't, I don't live in the office. I travel around in my van, but it's there when you leave and it's there when you get back. I want to just kind of key in on, you know, what, what Patrick was saying there. That shook me, you know, the actual, it was a rumor seeing that car and people, but the actual, you know, parking lot, uh, the security guard, the attendant uh, telling me that story and, and confirming it. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's true because I never met the uh, gentleman, but it was a compelling enough. It, it was real enough. I could see the burnout in my group, and it actually scared me. And that was, uh, you know, about twenty years ago. And I, I sort of took it as a cautionary, like a scared straight type of uh, tale. I was, I did not want to be like that. I didn't want to uh, work so hard on something that, you know, I didn't care whether all my stuff was sitting outside, getting right. I mean, it. I didn't want to be like that, and that's what started me on this path thinking, you know, I, I in fact, I was lucky. I, I had an experience early on in my career, um, instead of, you know, like the lobster slowly boiling in the water and not realizing that they're in harm, I had a quick shock. And I started looking for signs of this. And you could see it in the interview, when when they interview, if they ever call their, their, their team a family, I think, come on, us being in IT, we know what family means. We're going to get a call for every computer problem that the family has. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of look out for those keywords, and I've been trying to avoid it. So first step in the Maslow's hierarchy is survival. But next, I'm, I'm privileged enough, and I work for people good enough. Um, how do I help others? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some... I mean, we could kind of take it from both sides. I think you're already mentioning kind of recognizing the signs. And I actually really like that you, in some ways, made it an analogy to uh, a cell phone, where I think the belief that it's a strictly positive or negative thing, I don't want to say it's a naive belief, but the black and white part of it is not, it, I, I know where you were going, but I mean, I think this, the companies, 
I don't know that they intend to make it a trap, but they don't not intend to do it either. Oh, see, they've got the double negative going. No, you're awesome. I love that, actually. Yeah. And so I think, like, you know, there's, there's a story about, you know, video game developers, and they're, they're working hard to push out, you know, before the deadline. And there's, there's, you know, people install bunk beds because, you know, hey, we're just going to crash here. At least we have a place to sleep. Management realizes it's a problem. What's the solution? The solution is to take away the bunk beds. And it's like, well, wait a minute, right? And so, I mean, I don't want to demonize the companies completely yet. Uh, not, not make them free. Right? Well, and that's not productive, too. Uh, we are, uh, I'm not here to, uh, like, deep dive into or, or create, like, a, um, you know, a sort of political social justice uh, um, moment here. But there's things that we can do, like, uh, you, you know, understanding both ends of the equation. And, and let's try to understand that corporate position. All right. We're, uh, we are here to make money in, in the, you know, uh, our salary isn't a, um, isn't a charity, you know, type of thing. It's, it's a trade-off, our time for them to get a product. Now, I think both sides have a uh, room to understand the other. Sometimes in blindly chasing uh, profits and features and, um, you know, the next thing, we sometimes don't know about like the long-term costs. And I'm here to talk about, and, and we're going to get into IAC here in a sec, I'm here to talk about how it is in corporations' interest to sort of, I want to say nip this in the bud, but uh, to address developer burnout, because at the end of the day, and I want to speak the language uh, to our, you know, our corporate system is that we need to address this so that we can be more uh, profitable and that we have a better long-term outlook. Uh, turning over one skilled employee, uh, it, forget about the morale, it just doesn't make business sense. It costs so much to onboard and make a, you know, in, in my field, a lot of times, especially like, say, things like consultant or implementation engineer or, or public-facing technologist, it can take up to a year to make them productive. You know, that's very expensive. I can, uh, we can do things to address developer burnout. And, and I kind of wanted to talk about some of that. I don't want to veer too far, um, but I, I have uh, hope that uh, we can use technology to fulfill some of that promise on both sides. Yeah, that's a good call out. I think uh, one of the things related to, to burnout that shocked me was how you know different disciplines have you know different ways that they get burned out. So, for example, if you're in sales, you're on the phone a lot, and so if your manager um, you know calls you to give you some immediate uh, you know feedback, that's actually a great thing. I mean, most people love to get to get feedback; they don't get enough of it, and when they get you know a call from their manager just impromptu, hey, you know, I was in that call with you five minutes ago and I think you did a great job. You know, that is just net positive, right? But engineers really value their sort of flow time, their sort of individual kind of focus time. And so that's an example where, you know, a manager who isn't in tune with developers, you know, might just randomly pick up the phone and call a developer and say, hey, you did a great job. And they don't realize that now it's going to take 30 minutes to get back that context, to get back into that code. And so, so there's, there's a lot of pitfalls like that uh, when you're managing developers that people aren't aware of. I love that, actually. Uh, I love what Jason just said, because, and let's talk about even uh, lots of people like being managed differently 
you know, sales versus development, and even how we get feedback. You know, uh, yes, uh, I'm I'm more as you guys can probably tell, I'm more of a people uh, person. You know, but not a lot of my colleagues are, and uh, you know, picking up that phone call from manager might be, uh, in addition to, as mentioned, the context switching, which is, by the way, just incredibly annoying uh, to context switch. But it, it might also be, you know, make increase my social anxiety. I, I don't want to have this conversation with. But that's not to say developers don't like feedback. And um, so we have in development, a uh, most software gets created through a, what's known as a CI-CD pipeline, continuous integration, continuous de- deployment, or as I like to call it, um, everything. The, the idea is software should be built like five minutes ago. Right? They just want you to think it, have it coded, and then appear uh, out in the world as continuous deployment. All right, that's where we're getting to. And to do that, a developer needs feedback, constant feedback, but they want it in channels they can subscribe to, right? Like maybe I have a Slack integration or I have an email that the, that the build delivers and I get that feedback. I can choose when to get that feedback, you know, and it's not human. So it's predictable, you know, it's a predictable piece of feedback uh, versus a lot of times I'm, I'm maybe a more introverted person and that social interaction through a phone call uh, that that saps that saps me out. Uh, there's something called spoon theory too, and some people only have a certain amount of spoons they can give to social interaction, and we should be mindful of that too, especially in the developer community. Folks are going into this not because they want to, you know, be people facing a lot of times, you know. Yeah, I think recognizing and and various companies try to give various trainings on like recognizing that there are different different folks. But in practice, it's something that I think you just always have to work at that empathy, putting yourself in other people's shoes and realizing the way you view the world isn't uh, necessarily universally subscribed to. And uh, I mean, even today, you know, I don't want to get into the like politics in the workplace. And we've seen a lot of people pushing for either more or less. And I mean, I think just there's a lot of stuff that happens at work and add that to your personal life, like we saw during COVID, where now, like, not only is there people being worried, people are being different kinds of worried, people are having different ways they want to talk about how they want to deal with being worried and about the problem, right? And it's just all this stuff swirls and you end up with this, you know, hey, I have someone on video in my house and my house used to be the place where it wasn't work, right? And some people have this work is work and, you know, not work is not work. Uh, other people have a more blurry line. And I think that, you know, sometimes through, you know, intentional or unintentional processes, those lines blur. And and you were kind of mentioning, you know, some, some things to deal with it. But for me, what I'll say is I think having in your mind, like, what is work and what is work to you and having it be defined is one of those critical things where it's okay if you want to work at some place because you believe it's changing the world and it's the only thing that matters. But be very clear to yourself that that's your relationship. If it's just a paycheck, be clear to yourself that it's just a paycheck, right? Like in your own mind, at least, be clear your relationship to this job because if you don't, it, it, you end up with this murky, like what is the right thing to tell your boss when they call you on the weekend? Or if you know you get a text message at 3 a.m. and get fussed at and you didn't respond to it. And so you know, you got to have that that sort of like delineation clear in your mind. It, isn't that weird? You know, it's like what you're describing too is, uh, you know, being clear when, when you're talking about being clear on that. I mean, basically, we're talking about uh, boundary setting, 
and 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 there's two parts like we we started this um podcast out on not villainizing any one group i mean i think um i think at the end of the day you're going to realize it's like i mean we're not so far apart the developers and the management we're not far apart we actually have the same goal believe it or not like developers they absolutely 100% they're going into the work and they want no no developer says like oh i want to accomplish less today no that, that it's very important that they accomplish the thing that they accomplish and it's just that it becomes um so developer burnout i feel is a just a, a fancy term for any type of burnout and that burnout is uh, you have burnout when you're in a situation and you're unable to manage the stress in that situation. And then that accumulates over time and then you have something burnout. Sorry if I'm explaining this to, and everybody has the same idea, but I just want to start off as that baseline. And I wanted to talk about something I'm hopeful about. So, so far we've been talking about bad and, and whatnot, but we have, things have improved, right? I mean, um, you know, the, uh, the, the pandemic has been terrible, but it's, uh, it, it has given us um, opportunities you know, uh, for instance, to increase our uh, our remote productivity, right? Zoom and all the connectivity there. And I wanted to talk about, if it's okay, something uh, that's helpful that that I see as for the first time. You know, um, you know, we're now at the place in our C CI/CD pipeline is the pipeline that software gets built in. And you know, I've been at a couple of DevOps conferences where. You know, some folks say the CI/CD pipeline is the meeting place for all interested to get. It's like the meeting place where we have to communicate with each other. Developers are now forced. It's like where the rubber meets um, the road. Where I finished a feature, management says, "Okay, where's that feature?" It's going to happen through that CI/CD pipeline. That's where we're like sort of saying it's okay to communicate versus picking up the phone. And within that pipeline, an activity. Uh, that happens is when you develop software, it has to be deployed somewhere. And that deployment place is called, it's infrastructure. And in more general, it's called an environment. That is like, I think the, you know, Star Trek, the final frontier of automation, or, or not final, but it's the next frontier of automation within that um, pipeline. And why do we care about that automation is because it's less tedious crap that I have to do. And leading the way for the first time, uh, we have the popularization, and we couldn't do this before, but we have something called infrastructure as code. Okay, People like Terraform, people, uh, folks like uh, the, um, you know, uh, Helm charts, for instance, we're taking the tedium of standing up a server. You know, and you can see where this, um, this trend has gone. At first, uh, I remember, uh, when I was a, a, a young IT engineer, that we would rack and stack servers and we would have a cold room with raised floors, right? I was working at a large gas firm at uh, a, a large oil company in Houston, Texas, not hard to imagine. And we had cold rooms on every floor, you know, of the building. And I walked into a cold room with a team and we were supposed to uh, you know, do some wiring and, and rack up a new uh, test environment. This is how hard it was. It would take weeks to get an environment, uh, which is just, you know, a group of servers in together and wired and put in the right subnet and whatever. All of that was manual. And we go to, you, you, you know how you lift um, the raised floor uh, tiles under it? It's with suction cups, right? Have you seen those suction cups? 
Well, well you got to probably explain to people what cold rooms are. Like, I mean, I know what it is. I've been in them, but you, there are probably so many people out here like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Refrigerator? You're so right. So a cold room is before you had your cloud and your Amazon, everybody would have, I feel like a grandfather explaining this to like back in my days. I, I totally you am. You totally like, are, but okay, it's good. So Go for it. Back in the old days, uh, what you do is instead of cloud, you would have a uh, a server room, which is all the cloud is, right? It's like a giant uh, server room and people are taking bits of those uh, technology. But back in the day, everybody had their own like lab room where all of these servers were uh, being underutilized and uh, set up into environments that you could connect to before <laughs> somebody had the good idea of, oh, let's put these in a common location and serve them out as a cloud. So you'd have your own personal uh, cold room, which is just servers and racking and cooling all in one place for you to access compute power. We didn't call it then. We said, hey, we need a server in the, in the lab. Uh, so you in and you raise the floor because a lot of times you put these in old buildings and uh it's to allow cooling and all the wiring to go under and it literally is cold they blow like extra air conditioning in it because the servers get hot and they don't want them to overheat yeah yeah go in with a jacket type of thing right and i uh, took suction cups and i attempted to or i did lift the the panel on the floor that we were going uh, through and we found curled up a um a contractor asleep yes no. we, found a, a, we found a contractor now uh you know i i'm not a narc but this is a, a a definite you know situation that's not tenable or safe uh this you know this was reported and no, uh, no, no, no. i we never saw that contractor again but um you know some people address developer burnout in different ways i guess but you never saw him again, but you always felt like he was there, just underfoot. <laughs> I, it was a creepy... I'm so glad. That's so <laughs> yeah, do you have lift all the tiles now whenever you go in? You gotta put, like, clear ones in? I try to never be in a cold room anymore. It's kind of like one of those things, like, from your early on in your career, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm never doing that again. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so now I'm always uh, afraid. Okay, okay, so sorry. Gentlemen, I got soft track. Thank you. So we have now something. So that I was describing the dinosaur days, right? Um, what I want to describe now is we've come to where nobody has a cold room in their uh, office. They have, uh, they use Amazon or Azure or whatever. They're a cloud service, right? And it used to be you can create these infrastructure components through like um, the GUI, but nobody does that anymore either. It's they provision out systems through code uh, and a lot of these web providers a lot of these cloud providers have their own language but what's cool about like something like terraform is they're cloud agnostic meaning i can code up i can say stand up a tomcat server stand up a load balancer stand up a database in this one script and i can point it to aws or azure or whatever and my assets will appear after i run this script right doesn't that sound like a miracle you know, um, yeah, it sounds like now I don't have to do anything to get this, uh, you know, server. I don't have to rack it. I don't have to provision it. I don't have to go to a GUI to do it. And it's all within command line tools. And I'm arguing that things like that can remove probably folks that are listening right now have had trouble with an environment. They need an environment to deploy their software. They're ready to go. The corporation, the corporate managers and leadership are saying, this is great. And we're realizing right now that the bottleneck 
is somewhere somewhere to install that software. So infrastructure as code gets us one step closer to the promised land where I don't have to worry about that. Immediately after building my code, so the so current process is check out code from like a source control, right? Onto your build server. That's a well understood uh, pattern. You build the code into bits that you can deploy. Also well understood, very well mature. You save the bits onto an artifact repository, which is a binary repository similar to source control, but stores version of your software. That's well understood. And automation deployment is also well understood. We get it from that commonplace, the artifact repository, and install it on our system. What we're still in the baby nation phase of is having that environment codified to be consistent and to be on demand and ready. And infrastructure as code is that next thing I'm super excited about that really is going to help developers not sit around and wait ever for that. We can find the next bottleneck, you know. Um, so yeah, that's you know, that's it. we can go as deep as you want there. Um, so let's talk. Today's sponsor is Mergeify. Mergeify is a tool for GitHub that prioritizes, queues, automatically merges, comments, rebases, updates, labels, backports, closes, and assigns your pull requests. Mergeify features allow you to automate what you would normally do manually. You can secure your code using a merge queue, automatically merge it, and many more features. By saving time, you and your team can focus on projects that matter. Mergeify can coordinate with any CI and is fully integrated into GitHub. They have a startup program that could give your company a 12-month credit to leverage Mergeify. That's up to $21,000 of value. Start saving time. Visit Mergeify.com to sign up for a demo and get started. Or just follow the link in the show notes. Back to the episode. I have some questions, but I guess, yeah, so to like, to kind of bridge that back, what I hear you you kind of calling out is, and, and I've observed this across many tasks, is that the last thing you want to do, and we talked about context switching and that is you're ready to go do something, you hit compile, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, when you've awkwardly, like, I don't know what to do, check Slack, whatever, your code comes back, oh, you, you know, you have a typo. You're like, oh, crap, you're like trying to figure out whatever, right? And so that, that, you know, when you have those friction points, then, you know, it just, it just, it kills more than just the time lost. So I, if I hear what you're saying is infrastructure code is in part to do this, that like you get ready to go deploy. And then there's these tasks that need to be done to make sure that in exactly the same way. So not only is it a tedious task, it's a task that needs to be done accurately, precisely, repeatably. And if you have a human do that, they're going to be context switched out, they're going to be frustrated, and you're going to lead into those problems that just take them out of their their comfort zone, out of their flow, right? And like, put them into doing this task. And so this infrastructure at code, you're sort of uh, describing as helping solve that process to help like kind of go in and, and address it. I love so much that 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 recap of what I just said, Patrick. It's like a, it was a complete... Um, uh, like a lob, a total softball. I mean, because that allows, so now I get to take the other side, like the uh, leadership management side. If you think about it, uh, so, you know, I, I love, I don't know if you in the audience picked this up, but Patrick said one 
really cool thing is not only is this a tedious job that you have to do and it's done you know manually a lot of times but it has to be absolutely bulletproof repeatable just as it was that 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 statement that i made screams of automation and and it screams and when you hear that you know something has to be done reliably fast and 100% of the uh, time done the same way you think scripting and when you don't do scripting you've identified a task that is going to wear down a developer's soul oh and one more thing i want to say about that is we're assuming that the developer has the necessary skills to build that infrastructure but that's the rub we're putting things on the developer that are not their responsibility uh is the environment hardened do they have a security um uh, opening did they conform to their corporate standards and getting the subnet uh correctly on these things you're 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 paying a fully baked rate for a developer to figuring out something that they they there's a skills gap there you know if we could somehow what what IAC does it does another thing for leadership it's taking a um there's there's a position typically held by a cloud architect that is responsible for those environments to be created properly but they're they number in the few and to make their skills scalable you if you put infrastructure as code they can review scripts and not thousands of individual environments that they would have on a backlog so it's like a double win for both the developer and the leadership and it's setting and what infrastructure as code also sets up uh sets the leadership up for is taking more stuff off of the uh off the developer's plate for instance as a developer i really i'm trying to get code out i shouldn't care about the cloud bill but to to my developers that are listening on the call uh, on the on the podcast um you know you have that at the end of the month the 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 manager comes up and says what why are my why did my costs spike suddenly and then comes the activity of trying to figure that out that kills me i don't care that's your job to figure out i just i just write code yeah that may actually not be like obvious to people how that works but at a lot of large companies and the ones that don't do end up having someone need to kind of basically review the bill because what they found out is if you don't hold them accountable the bill will just skyrocket. And so um, having been through companies going through that transition. And so you're, when you're going in and using a cloud service, internal, external, like you're not paying that bill. You're just, it's getting billed to your company, right? But it's getting billed to some portion of your company and it's getting rolled up and rolled down and you know all that stuff happens and you're just using it. But then someone in your management chain will get an email <laughs> at the end of the month or end of the week saying, hey, here's how much you use. Here's how much it's increased. Here's how much of year over year. I'm not telling you to make it go down, but I'm telling you, you should pay attention to it. I mean, at the very minimum, Patrick, it, it, it has context switched me. I have to now answer this question. I have to investigate. But what IAC uh, sort of gets us, infrastructure as code gets us is, there is, uh, it doesn't get us all the way there, but right now I now have automation creating uh, my infrastructure. Now, if your infrastructure is being created by automation, I can put in things called like tags and I can guarantee that they will show up on my Amazon bill or my Azure bill or my GCP, my Google uh, cloud compute um, bill. Now that's not 100%. And uh, I'm going to take a second just 
to plug, you know, the, the company that I work for, uh, Quali Torque. Uh, Quali has a product called Torque, and we're a control plant sort of over that. So, and all I'm, all I'm calling out here with this plug is IAC isn't all the way there. It's, you need a process to manage just like um, code stored in Git isn't all the way there. You need something to, to sort of act as a control plane and manage that. That's what GitHub is to Git repos. You need something over, you know, flo- IAC scripts, Terraform scripts floating around in your corporation. That's not going to help you. If somebody reuses that script with your tags on it, you'll get billed for that stuff, even though you're on another project. And so what uh, we, we thought of is, what's the next step to make this problem go away and to satisfy both leadership and line, uh, line working developers? And that's it. It's the control plane that says, I have a list of Terraform scripts or Helm scripts here. We divided up access to different applications and you can provision all you want in, in a self-service way. And I can only touch the scripts that I care about and it auto tags and auto does all that. So now as a developer, I get the environment that I want and I never have to worry about costs. I never have to worry whether it meets corporate standards because the scripts have been signed off on and now are made available for reuse. And I don't have to worry about uh, permissions. I, as a developer working on application A, will only be able to see certain scripts. And that and that's what really I'm trying to sort of nudge us towards. Like, let's stop making this a problem. Let's automate it. Let's give leadership the information they need and developers a, the ability to just, their fully baked cost is incredible. We want We want to trust them. If we don't trust them, that's like a, that's more of a uh, an employee HR problem, right? You know, let's stop snooping on them. Let's stop micromanaging them. Let's give them the tools that satisfy leadership's valid need for control and compliance and security with the ability to self-service develop. That's the holy grail, right? Maybe I'll express my naivete here. Okay, I definitely will. I have no idea what's going on. Um, so... So what I'm understanding in the flow is if I'm a developer and I'm trying to stand up some infrastructure and I can write these scripts, you mentioned this Terraform Helm script. I'm not sure of the difference, but there are these two ones. And then the idea being that like when we stand it up, we want to associate that the things that we're bringing up are uh, able to be grouped later so you can analyze them. So you have these, these tags, you put on it, you bring your stuff up. I imagine you're saying how many of the thing you want, like I need X number of processors I want you know, X amount of, I don't know, bandwidth or an Nginx, you know, proxy in front that's going to do this. Is this the level? Am I kind of... You totally got it. Um, I did want to add one more thing. So we talked about the grouping logically and we, do, we talked about doing that in, in tags. But uh, another thing that the scripts uh, a lot of times just on their own don't, don't kind of address, it's, it's um, the life cycle of infrastructure. A lot of these were just meant, hey, I got I to gotta stand this up fast. But you know, one of the ways that costs uh, increase in, in the workplace uh, for cloud causes, I forgot to kill an environment. Isn't that the dreaded one? Well, here with a control plane, and one of the things that we did was we took scripts and we say there is a lifetime. You set the lifetime at the beginning, and then it's guaranteed whatever assets were created by the control plane will be at that time when it's expired, it'll be killed. There's no, I went over on the weekend and I left a very expensive perf environment up. You know, there's none of that. Um, so now, not only did I not have to worry about cost, but I can also confidently 
as an application team developer, I can confidently say I am reducing costs without it being a burden to me. It'll just die on its own in the time that I set. And I have the receipts to prove it. Nice. Okay, so I, I see this. This is addressing, yeah, we have this, you know, I mentioned this summary page comes out. Management's like, hey, what's this thing that's been running for this long? Does anyone know who owns it? We email around the team like, hey, who who has this AWS instance running? Like, does anyone know what it is? Is it safe to take down? Like, we could take it down, but we don't know. Is it like serving some critical role? And like, you know, it's going to... So what you're saying here is like, not just... It helps with that as well. Not just like, hey, this is expensive and running, but where did it come from? How did it get there? Who deployed it? I mean, are you getting that kind of like provenance information as well? Yes, 100%. And and also I mentioned um, compliance and like, okay, we started talking about developer burnout and IAC. And those are sexy topics. I'm about to talk about something super unsexy. Ready? Compliance. I can just sort of picture all the, the folks listening. It's like, yeah, that is pretty, pretty unsexy. Tell us why though. I think actually a lot of people are going to be like, like personally, I've never run into compliance issues. So I, I don't want to talk about it because it sounds horrible, but actually I have no idea like what does it actually, actually be? Yeah, I mean, compliance for me just it sounds like uh, a person with a suit who has like uh, two sort of pockets in his lapel and he's got the left pocket for left ear Q-tips and the right pocket for right ear Q-tips and never the two shall mix. You know, one of these type of things, you know. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about compliance, all right? Um, folks on listening might remember there's a uh, uh, a lot of times software is built by you know taking uh, public open source pieces of software like log4j and whatnot and recently we've heard about some very public you know not mentioning any uh, names but very public very um, embarrassing security breaches made and then when they root caused it it was simply none of their software had a problem it was software that they brought in that they depend on, such as a, a vulnerability in an older version of like say Log4j or something that's very popular and, and used by many. Compliance is making sure none of that happens. Somebody, so you know, in the olden days, it would be somebody, uh, we would have a bomb. It was called a bomb, B-O-M, a bomb list for software. Like, oh, these are everything. And it was shrink wrap software, right? It was like a CD, you know, of, oh, here are all the files. And in the good old days, I could just check off all of these, you know, it's like, oh, I know where this came from, whatever, and it's burned on CD for life, and it's no problem, right? Um, things have gotten much more complicated in a connected, uh, you know, open source, uh, commercializing open source uh, items type of world. And so this is super uh, important. And some of my colleagues in like, for instance, uh, we have a partner, uh, um, you know, JFrog makes uh, one of the most uh, popular uh, artifact uh, repositories there and they offer that's so uh, popular that they offer scanning all your binaries for you and whatnot to see if you have any of those uh, problematic um, dependencies but the point here is the compliance is real it's not going away and if you go to any like uh, devops uh, you know conference what they're going to talk about they're constantly just like everything gets cheaper when you push it upstream in the development process like in the thinking and the coding part they're going to start, and they're calling it DevSecOps. Uh, they're pushing security up the food chain. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know jack about security, okay? I need tools that are going to help me do this, and I don't really want to. And that's one of the things that we encode to. You have a cloud architect responsible for this. They're going to make sure your Terraform scripts or your Helm scripts 
are correct and they and, and you're scanning all the pieces and the infrastructure meets the requirements and so then the, and then we publish it as a card you know in a catalog that this is your infrastructure super cool app number one infrastructure for qa or whatever and when you have those cards and run it you'll know compliance is done and you've therefore remove the bottleneck of your cloud architect's time you don't need to hire multiple of them to it's just one person scanning all the scripts and you've also taken away the developer having to worry about this and third uh leadership is happy because now um you know you have stability you have compliance and that all helps you make money you know it's confidence that your software is not broken and you're not going to have an embarrassing you know public incident so the so the control plane and bringing it in what you're accomplishing here is tying even more pieces together and allowing them to be sort of like viewed all all at the same time because as you're mentioning all these things are somewhat disparate like security compliance this that and what you need is a common place where as you said it's management you want to be able to go and know what's happening and as a developer you don't want to care you just want to say like I didn't get my stuff out and so what you're trying to do is sort of aggregate all those things together, put them in a common place so that they can really just, oh, I, I hate that word synergy, but they can all just sort of like combine to what to use it. No, 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 no. I always get pissed out when I use it as a being a shill, but uh, you know, you bring it together and, you know, just sort of like, it makes more sense to have them always, like you mentioned, I mean, GitHub, right? Git was not, in my opinion, it was cool, but you had version control, your own peer review process, bringing it all into one place and adding, you know, the syntax correction suggestions and the peer review comments and the automated Jenkins test results, right? Putting it in one place. The pull request mechanism in one common place, you know? I was going to respond, but I think Patrick said it all. And I just want him to come work with me too, because he said it better than, than I could. Let, let's just like deep dive into that statement. Control plane is nothing new. Okay, like a control plane, you can find it in, in technical literature all the way back into, uh, you know, the 70s. Uh, what is new is like, and, and I like, I don't know if anybody else in my company uh, likes this, but I like comparing it to GitHub. It, on the face of it, you think to yourself, oh, GitHub doesn't sound like that complicated of a piece of software, right? It's just a web page that's displaying repos in a common location. Anybody could have done this. But I think people are missing the point. It was a need. It was a need to centralize a decentralized sort of structure. And here we're on the precipice of that very same need. You have uh, DevOps as a movement where you're sort of freeing developers and operation folks to do things how they want to. But when folks do things how they want to, there has to at some point be and usually leadership plays this role like a true north to get all of the cats herded in the same direction, right? Um, and that's what GitHub does. And I love GitHub uh, for it because it's going to make my job a little bit easier. We're trying to do that with infrastructure. And by the way, this isn't even a new uh, um, uh, concept. You know, we talk about GitHub, but another uh, uh, place that is a control plane like that is um, Artifactory, for example, for binaries. It's a common place where people are addressing uh, what version of their binary do they have? Did it scan and meet compliance? Is there, you know, they publish reports, uh, permissions of who can uh, download that. And we've done this all along the way. And I mean, you know, folks who are into predicting the future, like check out how easy it is to see where the future is going. We had code, 
stored in a distributed version control system, Git, and now we have GitHub. We had binary, um, binary stored internally, and now we have Artifactory being a control plane over that. And now we have the need for infrastructure to be stop being a bottleneck. And we're going to see that there is a need for that control plane. Um, one place for it all. One place where leadership can guarantee its audits. Team development leaders can determine who has permissions to these assets. And finally, we're talking about the developers and avoiding burnout. I don't ever have to open up a DevOps ticket to get my QA environment. By the way, let's talk about that. Uh, when we do this manually and when we throw this on DevOps to provision us an environment, I would love to get feedback from the audience. How many times in your life has that ever worked the first time it was presented back? DevOps ticket comes back. It's like, oh, you're done. Does it work? I can't even SSH into it. Forget about it. You know, so it, it's, it is going to be iterative. You're going to have to do it. And I would love to hear back from people if there's a ticket needed to open up, uh, to start an environment. We're, I'm thinking it's going to be at least a week before you get an, an environment. You know, prove me wrong. You know, is what I want to say. Yeah, I mean, I th it all makes sense. So, I mean, I think we set it up pretty good. I, you know, I want to make sure we we take your time. So, tell us a little bit about like. So, you were kind of mentioning. I mean, I think we got the 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 hint here. But where where is Quali trying to come in here and help? And like, what are they doing to kind of try to address this need that you're pointing out? Oh, yeah. Like, thank you so much. Um, so I have been hinting at it and, and it is all about the control plan. But let me just like, I, I'll start off sort of with the corporate line and then I'll just sort of drill into, you know, where I'm most passionate about. But yeah, we're, we're fulfilling that, like that GitHub and that artifactory sort of control plan for infrastructure. And there are the pillars that we talked about, right? So there's self-service for your developers. There's um, a role-based access controls. That's for development and, and leadership and DevOps team. Uh, there's auditability and cost control, all things that leadership care about. And we're trying to put that in one, not trying, we've put that in one place and we're looking for um, folks to, you know, come tell us what their experience is with that. I'm hoping it'll be transformed. Okay, now here's where, it's the aspirational, here's where, this is Ronak talking about this. I'm hoping that this basically is indistinguishable. Torque's, Quali's Torque uh, control plane is indistinguishable from infrastructure as code the same way as GitHub and Git are almost indistinguishable. Some people say, yeah, I have a, I'm using GitHub or I have a GitHub repo. It's like, well, it's, it's a Git repo that's being hosted you know, over there in GitHub. And I want people to make that same sort of funge that same mistake because I'm convinced that, uh, you know, in addition to it benefiting, you know, my chosen place of work, I believe this is actually something that's going to help benefit people. And if they feel different or if they don't see what they want, here's an opportunity to sort of direct that. And, and I want folks who participate and use this control play to think how this is going to make their life better. Because if it's going to make their life better, it's going to probably make all of our users' lives better. And this is like one way. And, and you know, it's kind of like tuning up a car. You know, it's like, all right, I, I tuned up a car, I put a turbo in it. And it's like, I'm going to find the next part that needs help, right? Let's nail infrastructure as code. And let's move on to the next problem. Nice. So 
Quali has built out this torque, this control plane. They're you know trying to help with this stuff. I mean, you you're there, obviously. Like you think this is a this is a worthwhile while thing. Tell us maybe a little bit about Quali as a company, how to work for it. Like, do you feel are they giving their developers a chance to avoid burnout? Uh, not not trying to <laughs> set you up, but you know, it's one of the things I discovered. You know, like um, it's sort of how that I came upon that realization that I don't like lying because uh, I that's too much to remember. <laughs> so, so I like working for places where I don't have to parse myself. It gets me in trouble sometimes, but uh, I work for places that are, you know, sort of like my that fold in with my uh, worldview. And I personally, okay. So first of all, location. Quali is located in the beautiful, sunny Austin, Texas. You can't go wrong with that in the in the domain area. So, um, you know, just super cool uh, place to be. We're working on something that matters. I think, you know, and, and if, if you take a look inside and you feel that this, this matters to you too, come, come talk to us. And we really, that's, if you look at our co- company history, you know, we're, we are trying to solve this problem. And it's, it's almost inextricably, inextricably. I can't say that word. Uh, tied in with developer brand. I really tried. I tried to say that word. I just, I couldn't. Inextricably? Yes, thank you. I'm just oh, I forgot. It's okay, so, it happens. It's Monday. <laughs> it's it's so Monday. Um, you know, come check us out. Uh, there are ways to uh, feedback is important. If you don't want to work for us, you're like, oh, that's a little too much commitment. Uh, you know, try it. Try out Torque. And um, you know, uh, do you guys remember the old discount tire commercials? You know, t- if you don't like your tires, come tell us how it feels. And you see an old lady throw a tire through the uh glass come through a tire through our through our glass pane not literally you know? please well okay yeah i guess not literally uh, <laughs> i don't want to incite any <laughs> riots yeah that's it oh and uh, and personally i would love to and this is just the personal part of me i you know i want to hear about your experience and i know where that next place after we nail this problem it's going to be continuous testing we're going to have to we're going to have to address that too so you have a future. This is just like tuning up a car. We're just going to find the next place that needs it. And once we have it all under the umbrella of a control plane, um, we're going to give folks the framework to address all these future problems uh, as well. Nice. I mean, it sounds awesome. I mean, I think for people trying it out, um, do you guys have like a free plan, a way for people to try Torque, uh, a website that they can go to? 100%. It is, um, you know, portal dot qtorque.io forward slash join um, and there's a free tier that you can sign up for and uh, think about it and it's free and, and I was very adamant that you know it should be free because um, I fully believe in like you know uh, giving something of value if I expect to get something and I would love to just I ask for feedback. That's awesome yeah I mean I think uh, you know definitely check it out we'll have the link in the show notes and uh, this has been a really awesome, um, I mean, we covered a lot of ground. I, I feel like probably a lot of questions, people are going to be left like, wow, there was a whirlwind tour of uh, infrastructure as code. I feel burned out listening to it. No, no, please. Hopefully you're not burned out listening to it. I, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of these things and it, it, it helps us start early. I mean, I mean, it's, I guess it goes without saying, but, you know, realizing there's an issue both when you're problem solving for building a company or a tool or a software, but also burnout. I mean, being really attentive to the direction something is headed and making sure that, you know, you manage technical debt or, you know, personal debt, like making sure that 
you know, you really on top of the ball would be a, a, a parting admonition I would give people, I guess. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me over. Have me back over and we can go even meta. We can start talking about, okay, when you start getting rid of this burnout, what are you going to do as a developer or as a tech worker? What are you going to do to actualize your that true self? What are you going to do to make this place better? Write code on personal time. <laughs> we could, but or or how about this? Uh, how about we can, uh, you know, every library has, uh, you know, rooms that you can like reserve. Uh, why not uh, host like a, a STEM night and, and pass on some of your coding skills? Just even showing a kid how to use uh, Git, you know, um, you'll find new ways for kids to hate you in the area. Yeah, so. actually, you know, <laughs> I was, I was, you completely killed it at the end. I was not ready for that. Uh, so, I, you know, I'll say that I think that's really important. And you mentioned this several times, like, we're really privileged for a lot of reasons. I mean, talking about burnout, I think of, you know, I see sometimes people driving around where I live, there's lots of construction. I see people out working in the heat. And I think about like, oh, my gosh, like, my burnout is an entirely different beast than, you know, hauling around two by fours in the, you know, hot summer day. So I think we're privileged. And I think you said a story, Ronak, about your father being an engineer and sort of like having those books available, answering questions. I would say my father was an engineer, you know, but there are many kids out there that like have the mindset, but they, they don't have a live, they don't have a book on the bookshelf for them to discover. They don't have someone to come up and point the flaws in their Fortran code they wrote on paper or break it, right? Like they don't have, I, I, no, I'd be nice, be nice. But like, you know, you, I think this is a great point, like trying to help those and, and bring folks in who just, you know, we, we get sometimes for the podcast where people write us, hey, you helped me get into tech. I mean, now we've been doing it long enough. Some of those people are already like well into their careers now. And it really helps you feel that sense of like you said, giving back, really finding someone to kind of pass the baton to. And when, when someone tells you that, Patrick, doesn't that just it doesn't it just make your day? And that's that's what we're we're talking about in this podcast. We talked about developer burnout, and that's kind of like I'm I'm equating it in my mind. That's kind of like oh, okay, I am helping somebody at a at a at a, a car accident, right? And here, addressing developer burnout is more like I have applied a tourniquet to somebody, okay? to stop the, the, the bleeding, but I, we're going to need more help. You know, we're going to need uh, actual help at the scene here. Um, but that's okay. We're going to survive and we're going to do it together. And then you're going to, uh, you know, be it uh, months from now or a year from now, we're going to talk about the next phase to that actualization and, and making things better. And I thank you guys for the extreme privilege it was to talk with you. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening in again, and uh, we'll see you next time. Music by Eric Barndoller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide an attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.